You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Fred Balfour, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Each year, around the time of Charles Darwin's birthday on February 12th, the Paleontological Research Institution, also known as PRI, presents a week-long festival events called Darwin Days. The theme of this year's celebration was the power of pollination. When people learn about Darwin's theories of evolution and natural selection, They often hear about his studies of finches and tortoises on the Galapagos Islands. But Darwin also studied plants and was very interested in the interaction between plants and pollinators. To learn more about Darwin's observations of flowers and the insects that pollinate them, locally sourced science contributor Esther Rakuzin attended one of the Darwin Day's events. It was a presentation titled, Pollination and Coevolution, Love Story? Arms Race by Cornell professor Anurag Agrawal. Stay tuned to hear more about Darwin's thoughts on co-evolution and Dr. Agrawal's research on the topic. Later in the show, you will hear an interview produced by Cornell undergraduate Alejandro Schmider. He spoke with Cornell assistant professor Esther Angert about her research on a type of bacteria that lives inside the gut of tropical surgeon fish. Angert talks about how those two organisms have come to develop a symbiotic relationship that allows them to survive changing conditions in the ocean. And lastly, you will hear our science events calendar for the week. Here is a feature about Dr. Agrawal's presentation about co-evolution. The theme of this year's Darwin Day celebration was the power of pollination. Charles Darwin was known for his theory of evolution based on natural selection. He developed his theory after years of close observation of many different species of plants and animals from around the world. One of Darwin's observations was that traits of plants appear to closely match physical and behavioral features of their pollinators. This led to his theory of coevolution. Cornell scientist Anurag Agrawal talked about this theory at an event during Darwin Days called Pollination and Coevolution, Love Story or Arms Race. Dr. Agrawal is the James A. Perkins Professor of Environmental Studies at Cornell University. At the beginning of his presentation, Agrawal talked about how Darwin started to think about coevolution when he observed an orchid from Madagascar now referred to as Darwin's star orchid. So in 1862, a colleague of Darwin sent him a box of plants. Uh, And in that box of plants was um, this orchid. And he was really, among others, and he was really taken from Madagascar. It probably had been cultivated somewhere outside, and they knew Darwin was interested in these interesting flowers. And um, it really... Uh, took him, and he uh, was just absolutely fascinated by the length of this 
um, tube at the bottom of which um, is nectar. I prefer metric, but I'll just say it's 12 to 14 inches, very long. Um, and Darwin wrote in a letter to a friend, uh, good heavens, what insect can suck it? Meaning he had his ideas about pollination, he knew what flowers were about, and he basically just couldn't imagine the insect that to get that nectar, um, how it would do it uh, given the length and the distance here. The plant needs the pollination, of course, to have its gametes um, unite and to be fertilized to produce the next generation, and the moth, presumably, or the insect that might pollinate this gets the reward, which was buried down here 12 or 14 inches down. The hypothesis was that there was some pollinator out there, but here we are now five years after um, he initially saw the uh, uh, flower, but there was still no, it was, remained a hypothesis. I'll fast forward to 1873 when in the scientific journal Nature, a call was put out requesting knowledge of anybody might have of a very long-tongued moth in Madagascar that could possibly be the pollinator. Uh, what did it say here? Uh, Known to inhabit Madagascar with a proboscis capable of such expansion to obtain the last drops of nectar secreted. It was a question. Does anybody know about this? Well, 40 years pass. I don't know if that's exactly 40, but some decades pass when a moth was described from Madagascar with a tremendously long proboscis. And um, whoever the taxonomist was that described this moth um, gave the species name Predicta. And that was named in honor of Darwin's prediction that there ought to be a moth that um, pollinates this plant, but we didn't know what it was. Agrawal added that biologists who studied orchids and the insects that pollinate them found a strong match between the so-called mutualistic partners. He showed a graph that displayed that correlation. But if we look closely at things like where the nectar is in a flower and how long the proboscis is of an insect that might pollinate it, there's often a fairly strong match. Traits are often matched in mutualistic partners. Um, nectar depth is on the x-axis here and how long the proboscis is on the y. Each dot here represents a different species of specialized pollinator and its plant. And the main thing I want you to, to take away here is like if we were to plant, put Darwin's star orchid on here, it might be all the way up here. But basically, the longer the nectar tubes are, the longer the proboscis I don't know what the plural of that is, the proboscis are, of um, in particular specialized pollinators. And by that we mean pollinators that primarily visit one or a subset, a small number of flowers, and they've kind of evolved to adapt. So co-evolution is the hypothesis that Darwin came up with to try to explain why species that interacted closely with each other can come up with extreme specializations. Here, Agrawal describes the idea behind the theory and points out that coevolution can be driven by mutualistic or antagonistic interactions between predator and prey. Coevolution often occurs in mutualistic interactions, like the plants and the pollinators. And Darwin thought of this kind of interaction as an evolutionary feedback loop that resulted in exaggerated traits. Coevolution is the hypothesis, and we'll spend a bunch of time unpacking this for why things might go so extreme. Coevolution um, is 
something that we define as reciprocal genetic change. Genetic change is evolution, so we're going to talk about what the word reciprocal means here in a moment in interacting species. In this case, what we've been talking about so far is the plant and the pollinator. That's, those are the two that are having an interaction. And the idea of coevolution is that each of the two partners is imposing some kind of natural selection on the other. And that is resulting in the match that we see. And it potentially also possibly results in some kind of, let's say, sliding along that scale that we saw from short to long. So I think that's the kind of hypothesis we have uh, that's quite reasonable for why traits might get exaggerated. When the partnership is intimate and specialized, they can feed back on each other and kind of extreme things can happen. That's the hypothesis. So let's say the nectar is only, you know, eight inches down as opposed to 12. There's many insects, let's say, that have an eight-inch proboscis uh, that come drink that nectar. But if they don't have the hairs in the right place or the place on their body that's going to grab the pollen and move it to the other plant, they're not helpful. And in that case, natural selection should, should favor uh, changes in the plant population that will result in greater pollination. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locally Sourced Science, and you're hearing a presentation about the theory of coevolution of plants and pollinators by ecologist Dr. Anurag Agrawal. Professor Agrawal next transitioned to an example of coevolution driven by antagonistic interactions between species. In a uh, interaction between species, coevolution can occur if it's a mutualistic thing where they're matching each other and benefiting each other, but it can also occur if it's an antagonistic interaction whereby um, one of the organisms is food for the other. So coevolution, reciprocal genetic change, which is evolution in interacting species, often in mutualistic interactions, but also in antagonistic interactions where dynamics have been link likened to an arms race. In an antagonistic interaction, one of the organisms is trying to eat the other, and the other organism presumably is trying to defend itself from being eaten. So there's a similarity there. There's an escalation that might be possible in, a, in the co-evolutionary, reciprocal evolutionary sense of um, kind of matching each other as things escalate. Uh, in kind of predator-prey or antagonistic or plant-herbivore interactions, we might diagram, diagram arms race coevolution like this. Basically, natural selection, when a prey defends itself, that imposes natural selection on the predator to increase its ability to exploit, to be a better feeder, or if you're a lynx, to be a faster runner to capture that hare that faster running or that greater ability to eat or exploit results in natural selection for the prey to defend itself. And if evolution is reciprocal and they are feeding off of each other, that can result in highly exaggerated or traits like an arms race. He started off by making a statement, which to me was a surprising revelation, that monarch butterflies are not good pollinators. Here, Agrawal talks about how adult monarchs interact with milkweed flowers. Let's just first talk about why monarchs are not good pollinators of milkweed. And this ends up simplifying our whole coevolutionary story. So here's our wonderful, loved, beloved monarch. Um, 
This animal does, you know, loves to sit on the top of flowers like this, and with its big, clumsy body, it um, sits on the flowers, it unwraps its proboscis and drinks the nectar. But in order for pollination to occur in milkweeds, the, um, the pollinator has to drag out a, a sack of pollen that is kind of embedded in tissue that's right there. And this is kind of cool because it's the one thing that milkweeds share with orchids. And this is uh, sort of just a coincidence of the whole Darwin's sarcophage thing. But most plants, as all of you know, have free-flowing pollen grains. If they're wind-pollinated like ragweed, they make tons of fine uh, uh, pollen that consists in the air. If it's like goldenrod, they make that stick heavy, thick, sorry, sticky, heavy yellow pollen that is not in the air, but that bees collect. Um, milkweeds, like orchids, package their pollen not as free-flowing grains, but in little packages we call pollinia. The monarch simply does not drag its legs very often over that structure and drag out the pollinia. It turns out that the main pollinators of milkweed flowers are other insect visitors, such as bumblebees and other types of bees. These insects have hairy legs that can drag pollen out of the pollinia. So, if monarch butterflies don't do a great job of pollinating milkweed, then how did the milkweed plant evolve to tolerate those beautiful but hungry monarch butterfly caterpillars that want to chow down on milkweed leaves? Here, Agrawal discusses how the plants display several antagonistic behaviors that help them defend themselves. If there's a coevolutionary story here, it's one of antagonism, not of mutualism. Now, in the natural history of coevolution, the plant is going to mount barriers to feeding, defenses, and in an arms race-like style, the animal, in this case the monarch, is going to um, circumvent or exploit the plant despite those defenses. And the first barrier to feeding are the hairs that are on the leaf. These are trichomes. What the monarch caterpillar does on its first day of life after hatching out from the egg and it eating its egg shell, it doesn't actually just go to town and start chewing on the leaves. It must first remove hairs from a little area. And it clips those away with its mouth parts. It doesn't ingest them. It becomes kind of dandruff that's fallen away. And only then does it sink its mandibles into the leaf and start consuming it. When the monarch caterpillar takes its first bite of a milkweed leaf, the plant releases drops of sticky latex. That material sticks to the caterpillar and can choke it off. That is the plant's second defense. And some large fraction of monarchs die in their first day of life, like this one did. This caterpillar shaved some trichomes, took its first few bites, was overwhelmed by a big droplet of latex that then carried it and glued it dead to the leaf here. In the natural history of coevolution, what that suggests is that the plant has mounted a pretty successful second barrier to feeding. And I think, maybe I said this or maybe you know this, these monarchs, these caterpillars don't eat anything else. It's not like, oh, well, we'll take some bites of milkweed and see how that is today. This is their only food plant and yet some large fraction of them are dying on their first day of life. As it turns out, some caterpillars have evolved to display avoidance behaviors in response to the plant's release of latex. 
So in the natural history of coevolution, every defense that the plant puts forward is matched by some exploitative or offensive uh, tactic on the, uh, the animal's part. This is what we call the vein drain. And what monarchs do, especially when they're larger, like this, is they will spend lots of time, sometimes an hour, cutting the veins that deliver latex to the rest of the leaf. Very hungry caterpillar here, um, but it's um, deactivating by cutting the latex. And on a more milky plant, it might get a big droplet of latex on its head, and then it's kind of wiping it off and trying to clean itself off. Um, if there was a bubble above this uh, monarch's head, it would be very pleased with itself because the leaf is now hanging down, free from getting a mouthful of glue with each bite. Quite remarkable in the sense that it's spending more time severing the defense-delivering canals than consumption here, but that's what it takes in this coevolutionary interaction. If the monarch caterpillar somehow survives the plant's latex stream, the plant has another trick up its sleeve. And the last bit are the chemical compounds called cardiac glycosides. These are steroidal compounds. They're, um, they're used in, um, in medicine, in both traditional medicine and to treat congestive heart failure uh, in humans. And in the plant, um, these cardiac glycosides serve a defensive function by poisoning an essential cellular enzyme. It's called the sodium-potassium ATPase, or the sodium-potassium pump. In the um, natural history of coevolution, if the plant puts forward some barrier to feeding, that's going to need some adaptation on the part of the animal that's feeding it. And we talked about behaviors in the case of the trichomes and the latex. In the case of the adaptations the monarch has to the cardiac glycosides, they are physiological adaptations. The sodium pump that the monarch has is slightly mutated in a way that the cardiac glycoside doesn't bind to the sodium pump and stop it from working as much as um, it would otherwise. But the monarch didn't stop there. It's not, only not, it's not only is it tolerant of those toxins, but it packs some of those toxins away in its own defense. So the monarch caterpillars have evolved several mechanisms that allow it to evade the plant's defenses. And in the process, the caterpillars become toxic to their prey. Here, Professor Agrawal sums up the theory of what drives coevolution. When we have an intimate interaction between any two organisms, whether they're mutually beneficial, like a plant and a pollinator, or they're antagonistic, apparently like monarchs and milkweeds are, that can result in reciprocity in the evolutionary process that generates extreme or exaggerated traits because they're evolving back and forth in response to each other. And uh, what fun it is to study these things and to be able to share some of them with you. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. You're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Do you have an upcoming science event or news piece that you would like to tell us about? Tweet us at FLX Science Radio or send us an email at LocallySourcedScience at gmail.com. Also, check out our podcast at LocallySourcedScience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. 
Hi, everyone. I'm Alejandro Schmieder, a junior studying biology at Cornell in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Today, I have Professor Esther Engert here from the Department of Microbiology. Hello. So you mentioned Epilopycium, and you said that it's a focus of your current research. What is it that you currently do? Epilopycium is a really amazing bacterium that's found exclusively so far in the gut of certain species of tropical marine fish and only so far in the in fish in the family Acantheridae which is the surgeon fish family. We still haven't been able to devise a way of growing Epilopycium outside of the fish, but we've been able to use microscopy, we've been able to use genomics approaches and genetic approaches to interrogate the genes that are present in Epilopycium, and we've also been able to do environmental surveys of chemicals in the gut environment of its host fish to try to figure out what Epilopycium is doing in that fish, and also to look deeper into the evolution biology of these organisms. So right now, some of our interests include generating a deeper understanding of the diversity of these intestinal symbionts. We're really interested in their cell biology because they're the largest known heterotrophic bacteria. And we want to know how they can maintain such a large cell size compared to typical bacteria and still be a symbiont of these surgeon fish. So we're interested also in their evolutionary biology. Would you mind elaborating on the symbiosis that they have with these fish? So the surgeon fish family is diverse. There are about 80 described species of surgeon fish, and they tend to be found in tropical reef systems. They have a variety of different functions on the reef system. Many of them are herbivores, and these Epilopycium bacteria appear to be specifically associated with surgeon fish that are either herbivores or ones that eat a lot of detritus. That's just kind of organic matter, dead organic matter. So that was the first clue that there might be some nutritional role of Epilopycium. The second bit of evidence came from my collaborator, Kendall, who started looking at short-chain or volatile fatty acids and the concentrations of those fatty acids in the guts of surgeon fish. And he was able to find high levels of things like acetate, which is a very common fermentation product that bacteria will produce if they're fermenting simple sugars. That was the second clue that maybe these bacteria are fermenting sugars that are, are being consumed by the surgeon fish. And then that fermentation product serves as a, a nutritional role. It we're now generating genome sequences from individual Epilopycium populations or even individual cells and piecing together uh, a meta metabolism or a potential metabolism for each of those genomes or population genomes. And based on that, it appears that epilos, lots of epilos, seem to be very enriched genomically for genes that code for enzymes that either break down polysaccharides or ferment those simple sugars, take up and ferment sugars. We've also taken it to the next step where we've looked at gene transcription in certain populations of epilos and those genes involved in polysaccharide degradation and fermentation are, are in fact being um, expressed by these cells.
Are symbioses like these common in marine organisms? I would say that symbiosis is common everywhere, but it's super common in marine systems, in ocean systems. There's some great model organisms like Aliovibrio fissurae and the Hawaiian bobtail squid. There are lots and lots and lots of other key symbiotic associations that are found in places like coral reefs where uh, hard corals have a symbiotic partner that they require if they're going to harvest light energy for for their nutritional needs. I think we'll, we'll really see the development of lots and lots of other important model systems to understand how microorganisms associate with animals and establish these long-term evolutionary relationships that benefit both partners. So you mentioned corals and you said that surgeon fish also have function on the reef. Do symbioses like with Epulopiceum and surgeon fish, do these symbioses and relationships have implications for like conservation biology? Yeah, coral reef systems are really interesting. People say that they're hot spots of evolutionary diversity and that they're almost like the rainforests of the ocean. In those parts of the ocean where we see coral reefs, tropical coral reefs, they're usually low nutrient environments. So the symbiotic associations between microorganisms and animal partners are really important for building a reef system and for supporting the evolution and and lifestyles of these diverse organisms that are associated with the reef. Surgeon fish that are herbivores tend to eat different types of algae. So different species of surgeon fish will eat maybe brown algae exclusively. Those are things like kelp, whereas others might eat more red algae or green algae. These are all different types of algae that you can see associated with coral reef systems. People have speculated that herbivores like like surgeon fish are important for eating algae and kind of maintaining the amount of algae that's suitable for for the coral reef to to survive. The idea there is if these surgeon fish are eating the algae and kind of keeping it, it's almost like mowing a lawn, keeping the algae kind of low, they won't shade the photosynthetic symbionts that are in these hard corals, and that way you can have those corals surviving side by side with algae that might otherwise take over the reef system. So what you're saying is that epilopiceum and certain fish help keep the biomass and these plants in the ocean in check so that corals and other organisms can thrive. That's absolutely right. Microorganisms, I like to say, are the biochemists of the world because they are biochemically just so incredibly diverse. So by partnering, in this case, the surgeon fish, maybe partner, partnering with epilopiceum, the surgeon fish can now access that rich and abundant carbon source coming from the algae that it's eating. You just heard Cornell undergraduate Alejandro Schmieder's conversation with Assistant Professor of Microbiology Esther Angert. They discussed the symbiotic interactions between the bacteria species Epulopiceum and their host, the surgeon fish. Now, here's this week's science calendar. It's February school break week in our listening area, and there are lots of science events happening during Ithaca Loves Teachers Week, 
which ends on Sunday, February 22nd. Here are some science events for teachers and for the general public. On Wednesday, February 19th, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., visit The Science of Food at the Science Center. The Science Center is at 601 First Street in Ithaca. There is a fee for admission. For more information, visit sciencecenter.org. Also on Wednesday, February 19th, attend an open house at the Spacecraft Planetary Imaging Facility, or SPIF, on the Cornell campus. The open house runs from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. and is located at the Space Sciences Building, 122 Sciences Drive, on the Cornell campus. The event is free and open to the public. For more information, visit SPIF on Facebook at spiff.cornell. On February 20th, 21st, and 22nd, there's a behind-the-scenes tour at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. The tour runs from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. each day and is free and open to the public. The lab is located at 159 Sapsucker Woods Road in Ithaca. For more information, go to birds.cornell.edu. To learn more about all the events happening during Ithaca Loves Teachers Weekend, go to ithacalovesteachers.com. And that's all for this week's Science Events Calendar. I'm Fred Balfour, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. Esther Rakuzin produced today's show, the feature about Dr. Agrawal's lecture on coevolution and the Science Events Calendars. Alejandro Schmider produced the interview of Dr. Esther Angert. Thanks to Brian Gollins of PRI for his recording of Dr. Agrawal's talk. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Jordan. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. And don't forget to tweet us at FLX Science Radio. Science out! <laughs>